next investigator I met with was Dr. Sonali Smith, and she began our conversation by presenting a 65-year-old man from her practice. Yeah, this is perhaps one of the more dramatic cases or patients that I've taken care of. So this 65-year-old man, he'd had a prior stroke, so that complicated everything because he had right hemiparesis and difficulty communicating. But he came into the hospital through the emergency room, and he was incredibly ill. He had a performance status of four, and he had widespread adenopathy. He had hepatosplenomegaly. He had lost weight. He was cachectic. He had sweats. You know, very, very ill-appearing man. Do you think this was because of the rapidity of disease or delay in seeking treatment? That's a very good point. I think it's probably both. I think it is rapidity of disease. He had a very elevated LDH, so I don't think this had been going on for, you know, months and months and months. But I also think that there was a delay. He did not have a primary care doctor. I mean, he came in through the emergency room with really no prior medical care. And what was his home situation? Was he able to take care of himself or someone else did? Yeah, he was living alone. And he has a sister who lives nearby who was checking on him. How long ago was his stroke? The stroke had been about two to three years prior to his admission to the emergency room, Hmm. through the emergency room. So he comes in in this terrible condition, and what else was seen on his physical exam, and how was the diagnosis made? Yeah, when he first came in, I mean, he really was very listless, you know, and with a performance status of four, I mean, he really didn't seem able to do very much. He was pretty much bed-bound. And when we evaluated him and found the hepatosplenomegaly, as well as a number of lymph nodes that were enlarged, he had a lymph node biopsy. The worry at the time, of course, when somebody comes in like this was, is this infectious or is this malignant? And, you know, the lymph node biopsy was the right thing to do, although I think we were all very suspicious that he had some type of aggressive lymphoma. And what did the biopsy show? The biopsy showed a peripheral T-cell lymphoma that was very strongly CD30 positive. And where was the disease located? He had hepatosplenomegaly as well as bone marrow involvement, and he had lots of lymph nodes. So he was stage 4B. And can you, you know, sort of take a step back? You mentioned that T-cell lymphomas are uncommon, and there's so many of them, and in You know, it's hard to sort of keep it straight for me. But basically, first of all, what the difference is between a T-cell and a B-cell lymphoma in terms of biology and treatment, and what some of the common treatment approaches are. Yeah, so T-cell lymphomas are a real challenge. And so when we think about the 80,000 cases of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that occur in the United States per year, 85% of them will come from a B-cell, a mature B-cell that has turned malignant. T-cell lymphomas are derived from normal T-cells that have turned malignant. They're only about 15% of all lymphomas. And in general, we break them up into those that occur primarily in the lymph nodes, so-called nodal T-cell lymphomas. And we think about those that are primarily extranodal, that occur in non-lymph node structures. And because these are all so rare, I do think that if there is ever a consideration of a T-cell lymphoma, it's very important to have a second pathologist or maybe even have a university or an academic center review the path because they are very rare. They can be very difficult and challenging to sort through. At its core, T-cell lymphomas come from normal T-cells. And if you remember, normal T-cells are there to help us fight off infection. They are a primary important part of our immune system. They are part of what we call innate immunity. And 
I think evolution has made T cells kind of resistant. They're hardy cells. And when these T cells turn malignant, that resistance comes along with them. Compared to B cell lymphomas, T cell lymphomas are very resistant to standard chemotherapy. Even if they respond, they come back. And very few people with T cell lymphomas are actually cured. And so because they are so rare and because they are kind of challenging, it's been very hard to have clinical trials that are specifically there for T-cell lymphomas. And so a lot of how we approach T-cell lymphomas comes from borrowing data from the B-cell world. So back before we had, for example, rituximab, which only works in B-cell lymphomas because it has to attach to CD20, all the T-cell lymphomas were included in B-cell lymphoma trials. And if you pull them out, CHOP, which you know was before R, before RCHOP, CHOP was the standard of care. CHOP for T-cell lymphomas does not work very well. There is a response rate of about 50 to 60%, but by one year, 70% of those patients who had responded have already relapsed. So we borrow CHOP as the standard of care for T-cell lymphomas, but I don't think anybody loves that standard. And because we know that you know by one year, about 70% of patients are going to relapse, that has really driven this concept that if you do get a remission, that maybe an autologous stem cell transplant to consolidate that remission will help people do better. And there are some good phase two prospective trials showing that if you can do the transplant, outcomes seem better than what you might expect. But the challenge is that not everybody responds and not everybody is eligible for that consolidative transplant. However, in those patients who do respond and go to transplant globally, What's the chance, if any, of you know, long-term disease control slash cure? Yeah, I think it's probably around 30% if you look at some of the long-term data. And in terms of this man, he obviously you know, sort of shifted towards the more serious end of things. What was his initial treatment? Yeah, so because, again, of you know, how the literature has evolved, you know, CHOP remains the frontline standard of care. And so he received CHOP, but did not do very well with it. He developed neutropenic sepsis and in fact had a cardiac arrest and was in the ICU for a very long period of time. And considering that he started out in such bad shape, you know, really very weak and very debilitated and couldn't handle CHOP, you know, he was in a very serious situation. We actually had, you know, a hospice discussion with him and his family. I you know, have this vision of this very, very sick man in the ICU and wonder whether the docs and nurses in the ICU are asking you, what's this person doing in an ICU? Yeah, I get that question a lot. <laughs> and it's a fair question. You know, one of the challenges is that, you know, most patients with solid tumors who are in this shape, hospice is appropriate and maybe they shouldn't be in the ICU and they should be in a more palliative setting. And we certainly considered that for him, but we also knew at that point that he was very strongly CD30 positive and knew that there was a targeted agent available that we could try for him. And we'll talk about that in a second, but just out of curiosity, if he had not been CD30 positive, do you think you would have shifted more toward hospice? You know, I think given the fact that he'd had a stroke and really was quite debilitated, we would have considered palliative care in hospice. It's hard in lymphomas, I think, because CHOP is such a terrible standard, I will often try to move into either 
a gemcitabine-based regimen, or to go to romidepsin or pralotrexate to at least give somebody, you know, two chances to see if something is going to help improve their symptoms and improve their performance status. Again, cure is not really a reasonable goal for somebody in this situation, but at least palliation. You know, again, just being refractory to CHOP to me is bad, but because it doesn't work in so many people, I will try one more thing. And that was the discussion, and I think it's a really tough situation because this kind of came out of the blue for the family, you know, to see their family member be so ill. And in that regard, you mentioned that he had difficulty with his speech from the stroke. Were you able to communicate with him effectively? And what was your take on his feeling about what was going on? Yeah, it was very difficult to communicate with him directly. I mean, he could speak, but it wasn't easy for him to get his feelings out. He had a very dedicated nephew and a dedicated sister. He himself had no children. And his nephew is actually a nurse. And so we were able to have a fairly good family discussion about, you know, the risks and benefits. But from the patient himself, I got the sense, you know, one, he didn't want to die. I mean, that was something that was very clear. He was still kind of coming to terms with everything that was happening. So, you know, it's always emotionally charged. So I know that you mentioned the fact that the tumor was CD30 positive. Can you explain sort of what that means and what brentuximabidotin is? Yeah, so CD30, you know, when we look at lymphomas, you'll see a number of CD markers. And all these CD markers are basically proteins that are on the surface of cells. And CD20, we know, is very specific for B-cell lymphomas. And so because T-cell lymphomas have such a poor outcome, I think there's been this very strong desire to see if we could find an equivalent protein on T-cell lymphomas. Well, CD30 is a protein that is overexpressed, or it's expressed on a number of T-cell lymphomas, most classically anaplastic large-cell lymphoma, but also on many other T-cell lymphomas. Now, it's not specific to T-cell lymphoma. So CD30 can also be positive in Hodgkin's, and it's an activation marker. So any cell that's infected with Epstein-Barr virus, for example, will also have CD30 expression. So CD30 is not specific to a T-cell lymphoma, but it is expressed on a number of T-cell lymphomas. So what's interesting in the history of trying to target CD30 is that the first generation of antibodies against CD30 really didn't work. These were what we call naked antibodies, very similar to rituximab. They're not linked to anything. You just give them by vein. They attach to CD30, and the hope had been that they would destroy that cell. And instead, the responses were really underwhelming, I think, in the single-digit range. And so CD30 targeting really had to have a big shift. And I think the major breakthrough came when brentuximab vidotin used a very unique linker technology where they had this monoclonal antibody against CD30, and then they linked that antibody to a toxin, and that toxin is MMAE, or monomethyl or a statin E, And now what happens is that brentuximab vidotin is given by vein. It finds its CD30 target, and only then does it get internalized, or at least partially internalized, I should say, and releases some of the MMAE. And all of a sudden, we go from a response rate in the single digits to a response rate, for example, in anaplastic large cell lymphoma, where it's the vast majority of patients who respond. So essentially, I heard this described as a Trojan horse type strategy where you kind of get a very toxic chemo, but 
pretty much only into the tumor cell. Absolutely. And I think that's where that linker technology makes a big difference because that MMAE does not get released until after the antibody has bound to its target. And this concept of antibody drug conjugates is really being explored in a lot of tumors, a lot of conjugates, but the one that I think a lot of nurses and people in oncology are familiar with is TDM1 in HER2-positive breast cancer that also has this profile of you know, not having any really chemo side effects, no alopecia, nausea, vomiting, et cetera, but very good effectiveness. What about the tolerability and toxicity of bevidotin? Yeah, so brentuximab vidotin is actually very, very well tolerated. You know, in terms of infusion reactions, there's minimal, and patients do very well. The major side effect to look out for is that there is cumulative neurotoxicity. So people end up with a sensory neuropathy over time. This is usually reversible if you stop the drug. What we have done in our practice is reduce the dose. So the standard dose of brentuximab vidotin is 1.8 milligrams per kilogram given every three weeks up to a year. That's what the label says. And what we've done is we've given it per the label, but if people develop neurotoxicity or sensory neuropathy, the two options are to either delay and increase the interval between treatments or to reduce the dose down to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. So again, I'm just kind of thinking about your thought process. Here you have this man, you've given him CHOP. He's had neutropenic sepsis. He has cardiac arrest. He's in the ICU. You know, it's a really, really tough situation. But in the back of your mind, you're holding out the hope of brentuximab vidotin. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what happened? Well, I mean, so that, you know, you go back to that conversation, you know, and the family says, is there anything else you can try? Anything else that's reasonable? And when you think about the toxicity profile that I just told you about, minimal infusion reactions, and the main toxicity is a delayed neuropathy, you know, we went ahead and gave him that. And it was, you know, for anybody who's seen somebody this ill, and to see them turn around, it really does feel miraculous. He did get better. He went home, and he's actually, he finished a year of therapy, gained weight, had resolution of all his B symptoms. He's not in a perfect, complete remission. He still has a couple of little areas that are still PET positive, but he had, you know, really his quality of life, his performance status, you know, now he's back to where he was from before ever having lymphoma. I mean, he still has right hemiparesis. That's not going to go away. He still has, you know, dysarthria because of his stroke. But he's walking into clinic. He's coming with his sister. He has finished a year of therapy and really gained a quality year. He's gained weight, actually. He now has a little bit of a pot belly. And, you know, it's really nice to see. I've heard the term Lazarus, what's it called, Lazarus syndrome? Yes, the Lazarus effect, Lazarus yes. effect of what, coming back from the dead? Right. Wow. It just sounds like that's what happened here. Yeah. What was it like for you as a you know healthcare professional and oncologist to go through this? Well, I mean, I think this is one of the things we live for, really, is to be able to make a difference and to help somebody who really was very, very sick and to see his family be so grateful and to have the patient resume a quality of life and the quality, you know, just joy that he has. I mean, for a practitioner and a provider, it's tremendous gratification. It would be a great day when all of oncology is like this. But, you know, I was thinking about a quote that we put in one of our pieces from an oncologist who said that 
they put all their really hard, difficult patients in the beginning of the day, and at the end of the day, they put all the people who are doing well just to sort of, you know, get their spirits up to go home. And I imagine this man would be a real great patient to be your last patient of the day. Absolutely. Just to finish out in terms of T-cell lymphoma, you know, obviously this man went one course because he had CD30 positivity, but in patients, I guess the majority who don't have that, what are some of the other options? And some of the things you hear a lot about are some of the recently approved drugs, romadepsin, pralotrexate. Where do they fit in? Yeah, so T-cell lymphomas have really gone through a resurgence, I think, in the clinical trial arena, and it's about time. So we talked earlier about how all of our information on the frontline management of T-cell lymphoma had to be borrowed from the B-cell world because there weren't any frontline trials that were specifically for T-cell. Well, over the last seven or eight years, we finally have several large, you know, relatively large for the frequency of the disease, studies that are specifically for T-cell lymphoma in the relapsed refractory setting, and we now have four drugs FDA approved for T-cell lymphoma. I mean, it went from zero to four in a very short period of time. Now, one of them, Brentuximab vidotin, we've already talked about, and there is CD30 positivity required for that. And actually, if you don't mind, I'll come back to that point in a minute. But the other three drugs that are now FDA approved for T-cell lymphoma include romidepsin, pralotrexate, and bolinostat. And romidepsin and bolinostat belong to a family of compounds called HDAC inhibitors. And what we know, and this is something that's very exciting in the world of T-cell lymphomas, what we now know is that T-cell lymphomas, almost similar to some of the leukemias, have a lot of epigenetic changes or deregulation. So it seems that many T-cell lymphomas have genes that have been silenced by a process called methylation, and that by using different histone deacetylase inhibitors and maybe even hypomethylating agents, although those are not FDA-approved yet, we may be able to treat this disease in a different way. We know that chemotherapy is not great, and so using these biologic agents that are histone deacetylase inhibitors there is activity and very good tolerability, in my opinion. And what about pralotrexate? And pralotrexate is another, it's an antifolate, as you know, you might hear it sounds a lot like methotrexate, but it works in a slightly different way in that it gets into the cell, and unlike methotrexate, it, it kind of hangs out in the cell. And for unknown reasons, pralotrexate seems specifically active in T-cell lymphomas more so than B-cell lymphomas, and that's its approved indication, is in relapsed and refractory T-cell lymphomas. And so pralotrexate is a fascinating drug. It's given once a week for six weeks out of seven. And in general, the main toxicities to look for are, I would say the number one is stomatitis. So, you know, just like with methotrexate, where you can get mouth sores, pralotrexate has been associated with this. And so it's important that all patients have both folic acid and B12 replaced before they get started. So this is very, very important. That they stay on folate the whole time and get monthly B12 injections. And the other important piece in terms of monitoring for the stomatitis is that when patients come in, it's very important to ask them about their oral symptoms. And sometimes people will only have minor symptoms like, oh, you know, my mouth feels a little bit raw today. And you look in there and you don't see a whole lot, but the patient feels something. And I would say, don't be fooled by that. That is a sign that there is impending mucositis. And it's very wise to hold the drug 
by a week. It's much better to delay one dose of treatment by a week than to have somebody develop very quickly grade 3 or 4 mucositis and then not be able to go back on the treatment. And what about the HDAC inhibitors? What kinds of side effects do you see there? And is there much of a difference between bolinostat and romidepsin? So romidepsin and bolinostat are both HDAC inhibitors. And I think as a class effect, all HDAC inhibitors seem to cause nausea and lack of appetites and lack of energy, something called asthenia. This can be really symptomatic for patients. And, you know, especially if somebody is older and if they stop eating, that's a downward spiral you just don't want to go down. So what we do for somebody who is older, you can start romidepsin, for example, at a lower dose. The FDA-approved dose is 14 milligrams per meter squared for three weeks out of four. For an older person, we will sometimes start at 10 milligrams per meter squared just to make sure that they can tolerate it and then try to go up. And then you can also give steroid pre-medication like Decadron to help prevent and sort of preemptively back off on the lack of appetite. But other than that, romidepsin is pretty well tolerated. It's really just the asthenia on a practical level. Of course, you can read the label for some of the more serious and rare side effects, but you know, on a practical level, it's the lack of appetite that I see. I don't have personal experience with bolinostat, but I will say that it seems to have very similar side effects as the romidepsin. I guess one of the things I've heard about with bolinostat is the potential to use it in patients with low platelet counts. That is correct. I'm sorry. So the other issue with romidepsin is that sometimes you can get thrombocytopenia, and with bolinostat, even patients with low platelet counts were able to tolerate the drug. And how do you decide between these different strategies? I've heard people say that the HDAC inhibitors are better tolerated, and they like to use those first unless the patient's really deteriorating. Is that your strategy? Well, you know, one of the challenges with relapsed refractory T-cell lymphoma is that some patients have very, very aggressive disease, and they're rapidly progressing. And the challenge with all of these single agents is that they don't work immediately. They take at least a cycle or two to work. So for patients who don't have this rapidly progressive disease, that's when I use the single agents. And between the pralotrexate versus the HDAC inhibitors, some of it is based on side effects and what you think the tolerability is going to be. The only other issue is that with pralotrexate, it seems that that may be a little bit less active in angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, which is a rare type of T-cell lymphoma. So in those patients, we might start with an HDAC inhibitor first, but really it's a discussion about the side effects. So I want to finish out talking about novel agents in lymphoma and CLL. We've discussed this to some extent with every speaker on this program because these drugs are so important to understand. But I want to get your brief take, beginning with ibrutinib. So ibrutinib, which has now been FDA-approved for almost a year for both relapsed refractory CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, and also for the frontline treatment of patients with 17P-deleted CLL, it's an oral agent, and it blocks the pathway called B-cell receptor signaling. So just to give a little background on that, we know that when B-cells are born in the bone marrow, before they enter a lymph node to mature, they have a surface protein called the B-cell receptor. It's a surface immunoglobulin. And in normal B-cells, if they don't have that receptor, those cells die. And that really, I think, emphasizes the importance of this B-cell receptor. In cancerous B-cells, this B-cell receptor seems to be constantly in the on position. And so cells are driven to survive and to grow and to proliferate. 
And there's a number of proteins that really take the signal from the B-cell receptor to help promote the growth. And one of those proteins is a kinase called BTK. So what abrutinib does is it blocks BTK from doing its functions and effectively shuts down B-cell receptor signaling so these cells will not proliferate and, in fact, they will eventually die. So abrutinib is an oral agent that blocks B-cell receptor signaling by blocking this BTK protein. And as long as you're bringing that up, what has been seen in terms of side effects? Yeah, so abrutinib, you know, it's once daily dosing. And the side effects, first of all, it decreases B-cells, which is on purpose. So people do develop, you know, low B-cell counts. They have decreased immunoglobulins. And again, that is because we know that's how the drug works. The common side effects, I think, nausea, diarrhea, which is usually very low grade, and low-grade bruising are some of the side effects that people have seen. So this is described, if you go back to the clinical trials, they describe them as contusions, but people end up with a lot of sort of spontaneous bruising on their skin, and that is not related to the platelet count. We don't know why it happens, but that is what can happen. And then rash is the other you know, relatively common side effect, although it's still very, very low level, and in the vast majority of patients, it's grade one to two. And in terms of the B cells that are depleted, do you see infections such as sinus infections? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, infection was listed as one of the side effects, but it again was grade one to two. So you can see some sinus issues. One issue, I just, sorry to go back, but I mentioned the bleeding and the bruising, the contusions in the skin. And one of the more important practical considerations when you have a patient on abrutinib is to make sure that the abrutinib is held prior to any procedure, even a minor procedure, like a little skin biopsy or a dental, if it's going to be like a root canal or something like that. It's in the label. If you go to the FDA label for abrutinib, it does state you should hold the drug for two to five days prior to the procedure based on the invasiveness of the procedure, and then restart it afterwards. But my personal experience has been that if people do not stop the abrutinib, they've developed extensive bruising and sometimes even hematomas. What about the patient who's already on anticoagulation? Right. So that's a very good point. So warfarin was prohibited in many of the trials with abrutinib. So right now, patients who are on vitamin K antagonists, we generally would try to find an alternative. In some of the studies, there were subdural hematomas that occurred primarily in patients who were on warfarin. And whether or not that's directly related or if it was precipitated by trauma, I think is kind of debatable. But I do think there is an increased bleeding risk, particularly if patients are on Coumadin. So we've used different factor 10A inhibitors if patients need to be on some type of anticoagulation. So another agent that's received a lot of attention, particularly in indolent lymphomas like follicular lymphoma, is lenalidomide, particularly with rituximab and the so-called R-squared regimen. Yeah. So unlike abrutinib, where we know exactly what its target is, you know, this BTK protein, lenalidomide is one of those drugs where it actually has many, many actions, both on the cancer cell as well as on cells of the immune system that may somehow allow the cancer to grow. So lenalidomide, we call it, you know, the terms that people have used is that it has pleiotropic effects or multiple effects on different cells, and it may in fact be different in different cancers. We know that it decreases some cytokines like IL-6. 
We know that it can inhibit some other very important angiogenic proteins like VEGF. But in truth, I don't think anybody really knows the specific way that lenalidomide works. But we do know that when we use lenalidomide, it has a response rate even just by itself. About 30 to 40% of people will have their lymphomas shrink on average with lenalidomide. I think what's fascinating is that when rituximab is added to lenalidomide, and remember that rituximab for relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma, the response rate isn't as high as in the frontline setting. But when it's added to lenalidomide, all of a sudden there seems to be a much stronger effect. Some people have suggested that they are synergistic and not just additives. So, you know, lenalidomide plus rituximab is more than either drug alone and more than what you would expect just by adding the two effects together. What about adelalisib, another small molecule B-cell inhibitor? So adelalisib is another oral agent, and I think adelalisib is a very fascinating drug because it blocks a protein called PI3 kinase and specifically blocks something called the delta isoform. So PI3 kinase is another kinase that's in the cell, and it has a lot of both upstream signals that it listens to, and it has a lot of downstream effects. One of the more important upstream signals is the B-cell receptor. So you remember that's what we talked about with the abrutinib. So the same B-cell receptor signaling seems to require PI3 kinase to really optimally you know, have its effects. So PI3 kinase inhibitors will block B-cell receptor signaling. But there's also other effects of blocking PI3 kinase in that it also integrates signals from other receptors and from other growth pathways. And when you block PI3 kinase, you also block downstream signals like AKT and mTOR, which are other proteins that help promote cell growth. And what do we know about its anti-tumor effect? And how would you compare the three different strategies you talked about in terms of what we know today in terms of anti-tumor effect? Yeah. So for low-grade lymphomas, first of all, ibrutinib is not approved just yet for follicular lymphoma, but it's certainly something that people are looking at. Idelalisib is, and the trial that led to idelalisib's approval in this setting really looked at a tough, beaten-up population of patients. I mean, when you look at any clinical trial, I think one of the more important features to look at is who they included. And in this particular pivotal trial, the patients with indolent lymphomas that were included, I think something like half of the patients had progressed on their most recent treatment, and all of them had had rituximab, all of them had had alkylating agents. They were very heavily pretreated, multiple lines of therapy. And in that setting, idelalisib had a response rate that was nearly half the patients. And what about the R-squared regimen with efficacy there? Yeah, and that one, so the R-squared regimen has now been tested by the cooperative groups as well as by MD Anderson, both in people who have already been treated for their follicular lymphoma and indolent lymphoma, and also in the frontline setting. So the R-squared regimen appears extremely active, especially if you use it earlier in the disease, but even in patients who have already had a lot of treatment. But, you know, when you use R-squared, Really, not 100% of patients respond, but many patients do respond, and the responses appear to be very durable. And when you were talking about getting back to adelalisib, what are some of the specific toxicities that occur with the drug? So adelalisib is taken at the standard dose is 150 milligrams twice daily. 
And the more common side effects are, you know, nausea and diarrhea and a rash. But there's two side effects to idelalisib that I think are very unique, can be potentially serious, and people have to be on the lookout for them. The first is that idelalisib, for unclear reasons, causes the liver enzymes to go up, sometimes very, very high. And so if that happens, the way it was managed in the clinical trials is that the idelalisib was held. And once the LFT abnormalities resolved, it was restarted at a lower dose. And again, there is guidance both in the label as well as in the published literature for how to dose modify. And I think what's fascinating is that people who were restarted on the idelalisib did not necessarily have recurrence of the liver enzyme abnormalities. So that's one toxicity. The other toxicity is one that may not occur for the first few months. It's something called a delayed colitis. So people who develop severe diarrhea a couple of months into their treatment, when those patients have had biopsies, they have a lot of lymphocytes in their GI tract. And what the cause of this colitis is is not clear, but it can be very severe. So diarrhea that starts late in the treatment course for somebody with idelalisib has to be taken very seriously. How do you approach those patients? Well, the first thing is to stop the drug, make sure that they're hydrated and you know not in renal failure. Many of these patients have gone on to have colonoscopies. And for those patients who develop this very severe colitis, I would not retreat them or rechallenge them you know, with the drug. What about symptomatic medication and corticosteroids? Yeah, steroids can be very, very helpful. We believe this is, you know, a lymphocyte-mediated effect, and steroids can help patients improve fairly quickly. 